0: If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail Just provide your postal address in your email The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1 Seventh-day Adventism, true or false, the agony of deceit, the origins of Muhammad's religion, spiritual warfare, Are psychic mediums communicating with ghosts or demonic spirits, testimony to the eternal Godhead, the Trinity, from tradition to truth, a priest's story. An Evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal Movement Mormonism, Counterfeit Christianity Turn or Burn Jehovah's Witnesses, Deceived Deceivers Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website www.biblequery.org Once on the homepage, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left hand corner then click on the newsletters button feel free to print them out first peter 3:15 says but sanctify the lord god in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear
1: Greetings and welcome once again to our program. This is Christian Answers and I'm your host, Larry Wessels, Director of Christian Answers. And I want to thank you for being with us today. Well, I'm here in studio to talk about a homecoming by one of my dear friends, Bob L. Ross. Uh, Some of my Christian brethren asked me to, you know, say a few words about Bob. And this whole video we're doing is a dedication to my good friend, and Christian brother Bob L. Ross of Pilgrim Publications out of Pasadena, Texas. And I spent a lot of time with dear brother Bob in doing a lot of videos over the years, as our viewers will see in this particular video presentation. I wanted to uh, acknowledge the fact that Bob has uh, had his homecoming. He's gone home to be with the Lord, and uh, this is sort of my... Memorial tribute video to him, and I wanted to kind of reminisce a little bit about uh, our ministry with Bob over all the decades. Uh, and so I brought with me here in the studio uh, some photo albums from the past, and I'm just kind of kind of reminisce on photos throughout these photo albums, which I meticulously uh, kept uh, in chronological order by month and year (laughs) so there's not many people that have done that with their photos but i've always been pretty uh, detailed in my photo collections uh, since i did a minor in photojournalism at the university of texas and so photography has been one of my things besides being a wedding photographer, which is a very stressful job. You better take a whole lot of photos at a wedding if you don't want to get in trouble with the bride and the groom and the, all the relatives. So I just learned it pays to shoot more pictures and be precise. All right. With that said, I want to just start a little bit of a historical background uh, with my uh, brother, Bob Ross, on some photos I've got here of when I first started doing cable access television on public access TV in Austin, Texas, back in 1985. That's how far back I go in public access television. Uh, And you will see a photo here of me with uh, a group of cable access producers going through their training to start having the right to use public access television equipment, and their studio. And, in fact, this picture was taken in 1985 during the summer. And I'm I'm there along with my other producer friends uh, as we're taking the class to get certified to uh, start producing public access television shows. Here's another, uh, it's a very bad picture of me behind uh, some of the studio cameras we had access to back in 1985. In the big studio, there's uh, the uh, Chiron generator. My friend is uh, sitting behind with his big smile. When you work the lights, you can look down in the big studio uh, at what the three camera setup looked like in this photo. And then here's another room of the main producer's uh, room as uh, we uh, have free access to all this equipment at no charge. It really worked out well. It was a good deal. You just had to put the time and effort into it. It only cost 40 bucks a year to use all this multi-million dollar equipment. So I got involved in trying to get a Christian message out to the general public, which at that time in 1985 went out to over 440,000 households in the cable access area of Austin and its surrounding environs from like Round Rock and Pflugerville and Buda to the south and Kyle and places like that. So it was pretty cool. There wasn't a single time I put a cable access TV show out uh, that didn't get uh, a lot of response. It was pretty cool back then. Uh, before the age of the internet, which kind of took over everything. Public access was the way to go back then. And uh, it was a way to reach a lot of people at very little cost. So I felt like getting a Christian message out was uh, the easiest way to do it. I tried going through neighborhoods, going door to door, knocking on doors. but People always thought I was a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. And I would get them to listen to me by stopping them before they slammed the door in my face and said, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. I'm not a Mormon. (laughs) Please hear me out. You know, they would suddenly crack the door back open. Oh, you're not. I get to talk to them about the Lord. It was kind of cool. Hand out some tracks and stuff like that. But it would take me like eight or nine hours to go through a neighborhood and only talk to a few people. And I pray to the Lord one day that I wish... I could have access to some kind of media that would allow me to reach a lot more people with the limited time I have because I've always felt I cannot water down the gospel. I don't think I can make any money at it because I'm going to stick with what the Bible says. And a lot of what the Bible says is very unpopular. People don't want to hear it. They don't like it. And when they don't like your message, they're not going to support you. And the Bible says you're worse than an infidel. If you don't support your family. So I decided to go the route of working secular jobs, which took up a lot of my time to support my family, to feed them like I'm supposed to, and uh, do what I could for the Lord when I wasn't doing secular work to feed my family. Because uh, the way I preach the gospel uh, and the way the Bible presents it, when you think about it, most of the writers of the uh, Bible were Persecuted they were they were slain, Christ himself was killed on on a cross uh you're you 're not going to make a lot of money if you tell it that way because the way the Bible presents it because people aren 't going to like you and they 're not certainly not going to give you any money, <laughs> so you can make a lot of money in religion if you lie a, a lot and that 's what a lot of people do and just water everything down and make everybody happy but uh that 's not the way the Bible presents it so i 've always just tried to stick with the the straight-up gospel. And that's why I've continued to work secular jobs throughout all, all these years doing public access TV and, uh, uh, and, and now Internet, as we're doing on YouTube and other places, sermon audio and so forth. Okay, I've, I want to get to Bob here as I laid out a little background. With this cable access uh, television production, I came into Bob L. Ross's uh, con- contact with him Around the year 1990, I was about five years in to uh, doing cable access television production, which I was doing with uh, a series we did back in the, the mid-'80s with my pastor, Jackson Boyette who's now gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, you might want to see our uh, tribute video to Jackson Boyette with him. We did uh, Understand Your Bible, which is an analysis of uh, books of the Bible, Ephesians and Romans and things like that. But around uh, 1989, 1990, I started to uh, move out into other spheres of topics and things of that nature. And that's where Bob L. Ross comes into the picture. Uh, we were running into a group called the Church of Christ. And uh, they were blasting everybody, uh, particularly the Baptists, uh, of which I happen to be one, uh, as Baptists being false and all this stuff. And the Church of Christ is the only true religion. Uh, And so we started to produce shows because Bob is an expert He's written books on Campbellism, as you can see there on your screen. Brother Bob uh, came in to help us with our dealing with the Church of Christ, who are very prevalent on the public access channels, uh, constantly uh, claiming everybody else is false and they're the only true church and all that good stuff, same kind of stuff you get from Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. In fact, it's interesting about that. Uh, The Church of Christ as we know it here actually spawned uh, a lot of these cults that came out in the uh, uh, 19th century, in the 1800s. Alexander and Thomas Campbell basically started the uh, Church of Christ movement in the 1820s. And I've got a video on this called The Rise of the Cults. If you want to know where a lot of these cults came from, Uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Christadelphians, etc. Check out that video. You'll see it there on the screen. And it will give you the full background of this particular movement. Well, anyway, they're pretty strong on public access TV. And uh, Bob was the main expert. Bob had written a lot of books on the uh, Church of Christ. Uh, I've got a few of them. I didn't bring them all with me. I've got one here called the Restoration Movement. That's another... uh, another uh, way of uh, describing the Church of Christ and how it started with the, uh, with Thomas and Alexander Campbell, uh, Barton Stone, Walter Scott, uh, and of course, we got uh, another one he put together called uh, Campbellites, Cowbells, Rosary Beads, and Snake Hammy. Uh Bob had quite a sense of humor, so it... Uh, yeah, but he's got more books than this. And of course, this book here by Bob is uh, excellent on the Trinity dealing with one that's Pentecostals, which is another cult. And besides, uh, we did a newsletter with Bob right here. It's uh, called Is Restorationism, Church of Christ, Campbellism, a Cult? And when you get into the newsletter, you have, you know, Alexander Campbell, you get your timeline uh, of the history of everything in here. And even some other groups on you know, articles on water baptism and stuff like that, other uh, offshoots of Campbellism. Uh, so, that newsletter is always available free of charge through our ministry. Okay, well, let me get back to Bob here uh, coming in for our public access TV stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to work it with my photo albums as a, uh, a way to reminisce on the history uh, with Bob L. Ross being our guest. And he came in for decades to help us do television shows, which we'll show plenty of clips from in this video later on. Here you'll see uh, our studio for Public Access TV. Here is Bob and me. This is back around November 2nd, 1991. You see Bob and me there in the big studio at Cable Access covering the uh, Spurgeon here in this this particular video, and also discussing the Campbellites. But uh, Bob was one of the world's leading publishers of the works of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And in fact, uh, here's a photo of uh, Spurgeon here. In fact, uh, Bob gave me that portrait picture of him as a gift. And in fact, one of we've got a couple of newsletters. Here's one. Uh, where we would publish Spurgeon's uh, sermons on certain topics, turn or burn, repent or perish in hell. There's good old Spurgeon right there. And uh, we have a lot of uh, information about him, thanks to Bob and his ministry at Pilgrim Publications uh, in his bookstore there in Pasadena. It's interesting, we've done so many videos with con- concerning uh, Spurgeon with Bob L. Ross that one of our uh, television fans even sent me one of C. H. Spurgeon's sermons, one of his penny sermons, uh, "Shall and Will," published July twenty third, nineteen fourteen, and here's a here's an actual pamphlet of one of Spurgeon's sermons that was still going on long after his death, and this thing's over a hundred years old at the time of this uh, video that we're doing. Uh, this is an actual pamphlet uh, from 1914 of one of Spurgeon's sermons. But anyway, you can see the pictures of us in the studio. Uh, Bob put the dates on there. And uh, we did video after video dealing with the Campbellites, which uh, led to many televised debates with the, the Church of Christ. Here's another picture where Bob L. Ross debated the two uh African-American Campbellite preachers, Church of Christ preachers that were uh, had a strong influence on uh, cable access TV back then. He, he always had a sense of humor and he he put his own comments on some of these pictures. George Williams, Don Bennett, and then Bob L. Ross. And he says down below, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> but, but anyway, we see here a picture of Bob where he put his own comment on here, send for our $10 healing cloth. And here's another shot of, uh, uh, Bob and me at the studio. This one being from, uh, 1992 and December 5th. Oh, by the way, I'm wearing this suit here in our studio, uh, decades later. Now this, this suit, like a lot of my suits is very old. I had this suit in a lot of the shows I did with Bob, uh, because I really hardly ever in my life wore a suit at all, except when I was doing television. <laughs> I don't need a suit at my secular jobs, and uh, I just wear kind of nice looking formal attire at my home church, Day Spring Fellowship in Austin, Texas, which I've attended since 1981. The same church, so that's uh, uh, a long attendance for a, for a singles church. Uh, but they stay close to the Word of God, and that's what I the why I, I like them. And uh, here is uh, I guess what I'm saying is I I wore this suit just for historical purposes, so I'm I'm reviewing the history with good old Bob on all these videos we did for decades. Uh, but video wasn't the only thing we did. Now take a look at this. I used to be on a Saturday night live call in radio show, Bible radio show. And Bob would sometimes pop in. Here, here he is at KIXL Radio uh, Studio, uh, 970 AM in Austin, Texas. And you can see he's got his book on Campbellism there in his hand. And he was our guest as we discussed that that topic that night. And uh, and of course, I'm right there with him. I took the picture, but uh, there's a picture that somebody shot of me, and I was half asleep because I'd just been up. Uh, all night at the post office with no sleep and would do these radio shows with with uh, virtually no sleep <laughs> and I was usually half dead as you can see while I was uh, in the radio station because I knew nobody could see me so I would kind of slouch on a chair when you're doing radio. Here's more shots of Bob and me doing a Campbellism uh, and of course, we have a whole playlist about the Church of Christ—almost ninety videos, I think, that we did over the years. So you got a real history there. You go down the list. You also have saved by w- works and water baptism, which would mainly be the Campbellites, the Church of Christ Restoration Movement.
2: As I say, our attitude toward churches of Christ generally is in response to those who have been have been aggressively denunciatory of us. Yes. And we don't go out here just picking on churches of Christ per se. If they attack us, if they come toward us, then we respond. Now, I guess what we better do then is since the doctrines of the Church of Christ uh, obviously uh, fulfill your standard or definition of what a cult is, we probably better go to that at this point because. Um you have said that you agree with parts of the dictionary definition but obviously there's more to it. Uh what what is your definition of occult? Well uh brother uh, uh Larry here is holding up a little uh, definition that I copied this from Larson's book as as you may recall Mr. Bennett who was representative of the Church of Christ in one of our TV debates he mentioned Larson's book and he said Larson didn't uh, mention Churches of Christ in this book, so I I got the impression that because Larson didn't mention them, Mr. Bennett was saying uh, Larson doesn't regard them as a cult. But uh, at the same time, Larson doesn't mention in here the Seventh-day Adventists, which Mr. Bennett thinks they're a cult, and he doesn't mention Roman Catholicism, and Bennett thinks they're a cult. And, of course, he doesn't mention Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians, and Bennett thinks that they are cults. So it did very little weight for him to say that Larson didn't mention them in the book, and so, therefore, they weren't a cult. But now, there's a book written by Bob Lawson
3: on the Book of Cults, page 19, and he said that there are two factors used in the evaluation of a group that is a cult. Now, this is, these are the two points that he makes. Number one, Uh, if it ignores or purposely omits apostolic doctrines. Number two, if it holds to beliefs that are distinctly opposed
2: to orthodox Christianity. But if you notice here, I have, uh, this is from Larson, page 31, chapter 4, a Christian perspective on cults, and he has two contingent factors which evaluate whether a group is cultic all right number one if they ignore or purposely omit central apostolic doctrines so these are ignored or omitted and i think he could have added in there they are uh perverted restored, perverted, perverted yeah. yeah then he goes on with number two in his definition if they hold to beliefs which are distinctively opposite to the orthodox christianity now, beliefs which are distinctively opposite to Orthodox Christianity. Now, on this point, I personally, uh, when I look at a religious group or a religious teacher or a religious book, my first question is what is the doctrine that is being taught under this theme of the gospel? Mm-hmm. What is their gospel? Mm-hmm. What message do they bring to men that? Explains to men the way of salvation And yes. Jesus said I am the way The truth and the life No man cometh unto the Father But by me Now I say that any message That deviates from Jesus Christ As being the way to God And that deviates in such a way That it misleads people, that it misdirects people, that it puts something in the way of Christ, or in addition to Christ, or subtracts from Christ. This is a false gospel. You know, Paul talked about uh, someone coming and preaching another gospel, another Jesus, and another spirit. Now, that that is possible. Not only is possible, but it's going on in the world. Another Jesus is being preached. Another gospel is being preached. Now, on this point here, this is the major element, so far as I personally am concerned. Yes. Uh, because uh, if they're wrong on the gospel, then what does it matter if they're right about everything else? Right. And uh, if they're uh, wrong on everything else and right on the gospel, then uh, at least they're right on the major point of doctrine, of truth, of teaching. So on this point here, when I look at the word cult, and we are taking Larson's definitions, for instance, here on this, I find that, uh, at least in my judgment as I understand the teachings of the Bible, that the belief on the gospel adhered to by the mainline or hardline Church of Christ uh, group is an error. Because on this point, they add baptism to the gospel. And uh, from there, of course, they go on to teach the idea that without baptism, you're not saved. And uh, then you have to uh, do all these other things. They've got their so-called five acts of worship in the church that you have to do. And you you just have to keep going on. And in effect, what they're teaching is what we regard as salvation by works.
1: In fact, you know what's funny about the Church of Christ is... uh, they pretty much spawned a lot of the other cults back in the 1800s in mm. the United States. Uh, you've got the Campbellites starting the Church of Christ, but out of them mm. came Mormonism. Mm. Out of them came Jehovah's Witnesses. It's <laughs> so one heresy begets another heresy. Now, every now and then, Bob would uh, invite me over to, if it was in the state of Texas, this one was held uh, in Texas and Dallas where they had a, a Christian book publishers convention in Dallas. I usually couldn't be with them for that. He'd always have a book display for Pilgrim Publications. And he invited me to be with them for their, their booth for uh, Pilgrim Publications. And there uh, I am with Bob and his son and me. And uh, way back, this is like, 1993, I think it was, or something like that. And uh, you can see Pilgrim Publications invites you to Spurgeon Country as we're standing there and uh, showing all the books that Bob had available on all kinds of subjects. Like I said, he was one of the world's leading publishers of the works of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. So that's kind of a nice historical photograph from that Christian Book Publishers Convention. And then there's another shot of it. And then here's another shot of Bob and me on another studio shoot at the Public Access TV studio. There's Bob with our uh, with our famous uh, TV guy, my good brother Dan with Bob. Here's another picture with good old Bob uh, in an, another broadcast we did at the Public Access uh, channel. This is in 1993. This particular picture here, Actually, looks like I'm wearing the same tie. It certainly looks like the same tie. My video guy didn't want me to wear this for this thing, but I said, look, I'm looking for old stuff that relate to when we did all these videos on public access TV, and that looks like the same tie. And so I was correcting using this old tie. He said, don't wear that. It's too dated. But that's the whole point. That's why I'm wearing this suit. So uh, anyway, while I was flipping through this old photo album, I couldn't resist uh, showing my photo op with R.C. Sproul. I always liked good old R.C. Sproul. He's gone to be with the Lord now, too. The older I get, the more lonely I feel. Uh, All my acquaintances are disappearing on me but they're in a far better place. They've gone up to be with heaven. That sort of reminds me of uh, good old Richard Bennett also. He went to be with the Lord not long ago. And uh, we have a tribute video to him as well. You can check it out here uh, if you'd like to see more about uh, Brother Bennett. All right, here's some more pictures with Bob and me in the studio doing more television shows. Now, here's a picture that Bob L. Ross sent me. This shows you the kind of humor he has. He has a picture of me, and he put this. This is Bob's writing. He had pretty good handwriting. You can read it pretty clearly. He put this around my face, as you can see in this picture. He says, America's most wanted. Post and all U.S. Postal Service outlets. He knows I've been working at the post office. In fact, the the whole time, I've been working at the post office as long as I started Public Access TV in 1985. I started both of them in the same year, 1985. And at the time of this video recording, I'm still working at the post office. So anyway, Bob's saying, Post and All, USPS, that's United States Postal Service, outlets. $50,000 reward, dead or alive. Larry Wessels, alias The Heresy Hunter. Last seen at Austin Airport and Campbellite killer Ross, armed and dangerous. And then here we have a picture that Bob's making a comment of himself at the studio. He says, that's not a rug. It's that new spray hair. As he has a picture of himself. There's a good old picture of Bob and me in the studio after one of our... And and there I am with one of my three suits that I had. It was kind of funny about my suits because uh, I used to have, back in 85, I used to have only one suit. I'd wear the same suit all the time for all my shows. And people got tired of seeing the same suit. So people started mailing me suits, giving me suits, driving by and handing me suits. And I got all these suits that, of course, most of them were worthy of the Goodwill, which I ended up giving back to Goodwill. <laughs> but I did keep a couple of them, and so I basically have three suits. I have three suit, uh, the the first suit I started with, and I've got a couple of other suits I got as a, a hand-me-down donation. So I have three suits right now. So, and this is one of them, and I can still wear them all, even though it's been thirty something years. Uh, and i and i can still wear all my you know i can still wear my clothes from when i was a student at the university of texas in the 70s so i feel pretty good about keeping control of my keeping control of my weight so it works out pretty good uh, by the grace of god so all right well that's uh that's our little excursion of uh the history of bob you're gonna get plenty more uh in this video i just want to give a little introductory thing and i'm uh, I'm going to miss Bob, but I know I'm going to be seeing him again soon. You can see his smiling face in, the, in, the, in the, the, the halls of glory up in heaven. And I'm looking forward to that, that great smile he had and uh, our fellowship together, along with all my other brothers who've gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm joyfully waiting my reunion with all the brothers up there with Jesus. And, of course, to be with Jesus is the the best gift of all to be able to praise him for all eternity. That's the glorious wonder of being with Christ. All right, God bless you all. Hope you enjoyed the rest of this uh, memorial video to the ministry of Bob L. Ross. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Bob L. Ross,
0: 1935 to 2020. On Sunday, December 13th, 2020, Bob L. Ross, loving father of five children, passed away at the age of 85 in the city of Pasadena, Texas, where he was a resident since 1967. Bob broke his hip on October 26th and was in a skilled nursing facility at the time of his death. Born Bobby Lewis Ross, February 25th, 1935, in Satillo, Tennessee, to father, Hubert Ross, and mother, Walter Lewis Ross. Bob was the youngest of their three children. His older brothers, Keaton and David, are both deceased. The family moved to Jackson, Tennessee, where Bob grew up and his parents owned and ran a series of convenience store delis. Bob was a good student and played varsity basketball and baseball while commuting to school on a motorcycle. Following graduation, Bob briefly attended Lambeth College in Jackson. It was during this time that he, in his words, submitted to the call of God to commit his life to Christian service. He moved to Ashland, Kentucky to work and study with John R. Gilpin, a preacher who became his mentor. In 1957, Bob married Ruth Elizabeth Gilpin, Reverend Gilpin's youngest daughter. They had five children, Stephen Mark, 1958, Deborah Grace, 1959, Nathan Paul, 1960, Rebecca Joy, 1962, and Michael Joseph, 1963. Bob was preceded in death by Stephen, 1960, Michael, 2012, and Rebecca, 2020. Bob edited and printed The Baptist Examiner, a weekly paper, until separating from Reverend Gilpin's ministry in 1964 and accepting a call to pastor a church in Ashland. The Ross family moved to Pasadena, Texas, in December of 1966, where Bob had accepted a position to teach in the Texas College of Theology, established by the Greenwood Baptist Church and its pastor, C.O. Jackson Jr. Bob taught Baptist history and theology classes and ran the print shop providing materials for the church and the TCT. It was during this time that Bob established Pilgrim Publications and self published his first book, Landmarkism. Books by Bob are listed at the conclusion. He also began to plan. For the publication of the entire works of the well-known 19th century English preacher C.H. Spurgeon, 1834-1892, known as the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon was pastor of the congregation of the New Park Street Chapel, later the Metropolitan Tabernacle, in London for 38 years. His sermons were published in collections by those names. By the time of his death in 1892, Spurgeon had preached nearly 3,600 sermons and published 49 volumes of commentaries, sayings, anecdotes, illustrations, and devotions. To republish all the works would be a historic undertaking, never completed by a single publisher to date. Even to get started, Bob had to go around the globe in order to get a full set of original volumes from such places as Georgia, Michigan, and the country of England. He was consumed with the publishing of the 62-volume Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, New Park Street Chapel, and several other Spurgeon titles from 1969 through 1980. Each volume had a cover jacket year-by-year capsule history of Spurgeon's life provided by Pastor Eric Hayden of England and a brief article By various theologians such as Billy Graham and presidents of seminaries across the country. While working to publish the Spurgeon Works, Bob Ross opened the Pilgrim Bookstore at the Strawberry Road location in 1972. The store quickly outgrew that location and Bob built a new building and moved into the Preston Road location in 1975. The new building was large enough to house both the store and the warehouse from which the publication's volumes were shipped to buyers around the world. Bob's wife, Ruth, and all of the Ross children were involved in the publication of the Spurgeon books. Ruth handled most of the mail, billing, and bookkeeping for the business, and the then elementary school-aged children learned to prepare mass mailings, sort by state and zip codes pack books for shipping, unload books from trucks delivering from the printer, assist with sales and public relations at the annual Christian Booksellers' conventions, and take care of many other necessary related tasks. As they grew older, the children worked many hours in the bookstore on weekends and summers off from school. Michael eventually made working in the family business his career as he managed the store and fulfilled orders for Spurgeon Books until his death in 2012. Bob had a second career, if you will, as that of a debater, primarily of preachers from the Church of Christ denomination, and primarily on the questions of the use of musical instruments in worship, services, baptism, and the history and heresies of the belief system perpetuated by the Restoration movement. Bob would participate in multi-session debates, some of which are available online, and wrote books on the subjects. Following the publication of the Spurgeon Volumes, he wrote two books about the prophecy of Daniel and how it aligned with the events of Iran, Iraq, and Saddam Hussein. He accepted numerous invitations to speak to churches, fill pulpits for fellow pastors, and eventually appeared on radio and online interviews and discussions. He was featured on the Christian Answers YouTube channel in 99 videos called Dealing with Saved by Works and Baptism, Church of Christ, at this playlist, and in a long series of videos called Unpopular Bible Doctrines, at this playlist. Visitors and customers came to the store as much to see and talk to Bob as they did to purchase merchandise. They enjoyed talking to him and discussing biblical teachings. He enjoyed sharing his knowledge with them and frequently sparked lively discussions that extended for several visits before the subject was exhausted. Although Bob was an athlete in his youth, and he coached the baseball, softball, basketball, and football teams the children played on, Bob's favorite adult exercise was golf. He squeezed a round of golf into his schedule as often as possible, usually playing with his preacher friends. He played golf into his 70s when his deteriorating eyesight finally made it unenjoyable. Bob is survived by his daughter Deborah Antoine, St. Louis, Missouri, son Nathan Ross, San Antonio, Texas, and Bangkok, Thailand, and former wife Ruth Amos, Leggett, Texas. Granddaughter Natalie lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and grandson Evan lives in St. Louis, Missouri. Bob L. Ross is laid to rest in the Oates Cemetery in Leggett, Texas, with his children Rebecca and Michael. Here is a list of books authored by Bob L. Ross. 1968, Landmarkism. 1973-1987, 1973, 1987, Campbellism, and Acts 2:38, the historical background of the Campbellite position on baptism remission, and a study of the scriptural sense in which water baptism remits sins. 1976, Acts 2:38, and baptismal regeneration. 1976 and 1981, Campbellism. Its History and Heresies, 1979, Old Landmarkism and the Baptists, 1981, Restoration Movement, 1981, A Pictorial Biography of C.H. Spurgeon, 1983, The Little Horn of the Book of Daniel, The End of Israel's Perpetual Desolation, 1993, Not One Stone, Matthew 24.2, The Little Horn of the Book of Daniel and Saddam Hussein. 1993. The Trinity and Eternal Sonship of Christ, a defense against oneness Pentecostal attacks on historic Christianity. 1994. Campbellites, cowbells, rosary beads, and snake handling. And now, here are excerpts from Bob L. Ross videos that has been a big part here at Christian Answers.
3: Now, I'm not here to defend Alexander Campbell, no more that I'm here to defend you still being a Baptist. Now maybe one of these days uh, when you receive more enlightenment that you can leave the Baptist Church as Campbell did and his father and come all the way to the truth. Uh,
2: Alexander Campbell was never a Baptist. I said remember the Baptist Association. He was never and a Baptist. I said
3: he was aligned to the Baptist Church. The he Baptist was never church.
2: He was never a Baptist Church no, member. I never did
3: a not say... Listen, I said that he was in the Baptist Association, that he was more aligned to the Baptist than it wasn't he church was Church He was
2: never in a Baptist Church. Would you let the, me... The organization he was with affiliated with the Redstone Baptist Association as an affiliating organization. That's they what were I never said. never a Baptist Church. And he was never a member of a Baptist church, although he had been baptized by a Baptist Church. Now, look, preacher. I'm going to say
3: something here, okay? And what I want to say is the fact that you misrepresented what I said, because I said that Alexander Cameron, at the point you mentioned, in 1811, was associated with the Baptist
2: Association. He was not a member of the Church of Christ. He was not a member of the Church of Christ. He was not a member of the Baptist church, because there was no, there you, was I, no Church of Christ. I did not say he was There a was member. no
3: Church of Christ there. Listen. You misrepresent him again and, and on the tape it's gonna show. I said that he was associated with the Baptist Association. He was a preacher at the Bull Run Bull Run Church. And that church was
2: in the Baptist Association? In 1811, they were not in the Baptist Association. They did not get in the Baptist Association, if you look at the book I gave you beforehand until 1813. Okay. And it wasn't the bull run. It was the brush oh, run. Oh, the brush run. Okay. So you I gotta, stand corrected. And see, you've got to get your history right. These dates and places and people. Okay. Correction, now, Eli- correct. I, but still, Campbell, the point that I made, the point that I made that I want you to answer is
3: that Alexander Campbell was not a member of the Church of Christ during the time he was associated
2: with the Baptist Association. Exactly right, because there was no, no Church, church of Christ. Say. There was no Church of Christ. No, no, there was no Church of Christ The Church of America. Christ developed after all this as a result no, wait, of the wait, Restoration. Wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, Mr. Elkin shows that they restored the it, is. so there was no Church of Christ. That's yeah, why he went yeah, to the yeah, Baptist yeah, Association. Yeah, wait, wait. Isn't
3: belief in the Bible sometimes used as a neglice?
0: Uh, You may be pronouncing it wrong, but I'm not aware of that word. You aren't. No.
3: So, négligé. It is a word, a one, a word that is used to to represent. No, no, no. So, négligé. You can get any any grammar book and look it up, and it it stands. It is a word that stands for the total process, and I can show you how belief is used in the New Testament in that sense.
1: What is your theological? uh interpretation of this word of vocabulary definition uh jackson had a dictionary on one of our earlier shows
2: well uh brother morey said something about that being a something somebody maybe a camelot wore to bed (laughs) but but in all all seriousness i'd have to have brother williams to spell that word so i can look it up in the dictionary because i'm not really familiar with what he was trying to um, say there concerning that word. He assured us that he was using a legitimate English word that had meaning and perhaps he was because I'm not the best educated person in the world, but I'd have to have it spelled out for me. And, uh, but uh, at any rate, the context in which he used it didn't prove anything for his case because he was trying to prove, I think, that it was a uh, collective uh, term, the word faith was a collective term that would refer to everything. And he used some passage, I believe in Acts, where he talked about the faith. And of course, there is a sense in which the word the the faith can refer to the body of Christian truth. Now, I challenge you, Mm -hmm. if you want to talk about challenges, to take this book and to show me one thing in this book taught by Alexander Campbell Mm -hmm. that you do not believe and practice. If it's in this book, if it's in this book, this book, Alexand- wait, a minute, this book. wait a minute, if this it's in book. that book and it's in this book, I'll agree. Are you yes. saying that this book and that book are the same? No, 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 no. Now, you know what I'm saying. I'm, saying telling you, everything I'm telling you, I'm telling you, book. I'm telling you that your interpretation, even on the word for in Acts 2.38, mm-hmm. Alexander Campbell claims in this book mm-hmm. that he was the first man in this, on this continent to ever assert That baptism was in order to the remission of sins, and I have the book right here in which he made the statement, The Campbell-Macaulay Debate. He said it. Now, that's his claim. You are asserting his interpretations of that book, and those interpretations are in this book.
1: And welcome once again to Pilgrim Publications Presents. I'm Larry Wessels, your co-host. And uh, I'll not waste any more time. I said co-host. Let me introduce my partner in this television show, Bob L. Ross. Bob, good to have you here, as Glad usual. to be here, Larry. And uh, introducing Bob, as I have, I would like to take this opportunity to show you on the monitor. We should have a camera bring it up. Three books that Bob has written, as you see here. Acts 2.38 and baptismal remission, the Restoration Movement, and Campbellism. It's history and heresies. Now, these are just three uh, books that Bob has written. There are many more, but Bob, would you like to elaborate on these books for our audience right now?
2: Yes, Larry. The uh, primary verse that churches of Christ have used down through the years to promote their theory on baptism is Acts 2.38. That's uh, one of about five or six scriptures that are their favorite passages to quote. And uh, this little book is devoted entirely to the history of that position, where it came from, where they got the idea that the interpretation they're using now uh, came from, and then how it was uh, blended into the movement uh, and so on. Now, this book, The Restoration Movement, are, is composed of materials which were used in a public debate with Garland Elkins. It has a number of chart-like materials, arrangements in it, and uh, various arguments that were used with respect to their positions. Now, the book on the far end, the Kembleism book, is the one that I've had in print for over 30 years or so. And uh, it's my best-selling book and uh, so far as I can understand from the uh, records of other books on the same subject. This is the best-selling book in America right now on the subject of Campbellism and uh, it has a broad uh, summary of their history, their doctrines, some of their practices and many uh, answers to their positions on scripture interpretations that they take. So, all three of these books are basically on the same theme of Campbellism or the Church of Christ doctrine, and uh, it'd be well for someone who is confronted by that to have these books available.
1: Okay, when you're dealing with Church of Christ people, you usually have to run into something called a restoration movement uh, based on these men, the restorers, as we have here on the chart. These men are restorers of the true Church of Christ, and then we ask the question, how? And what you have here is Alexander Campbell, he was purported uh, to be the master spirit of Campbellism, and of course over here you've got Walter Scott. He was a restorer of the something called the ancient gospel, and how did they restore the true Church of Christ according to these teachings we're discussing? It all comes down to things like Acts 2.38 and some other verses, but mainly Acts 2.38 I guess is really the numero That, is, that was
2: the great discovery, how to interpret for the remission of sins. They discovered that it meant in order to obtain the remission of sins, supposedly. And ever since that time, the whole movement basically has been built on that particular understanding or interpretation or view Mm -hmm. of the meaning of baptism.
1: Right. And as we say here, uh, according to Acts 2.38, according to these men and some others, I think of uh, uh, Thomas Campbell, who was Alexander Campbell's dad, and... And, then, uh... and, and
2: the thing we always want to remember and always remind the people about with respect to these two men, uh, Alexander Campbell and Walter Scott, is that both of them had already made a previous profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Both of them had already been previously been baptized by immersion. But in the subsequent discovery, after they discovered the so-called ancient gospel, and in their interpretation of Acts 2, they, neither of the two men, nor the father Thomas Campbell, nor Barton Stone, another compatriot, none of them were rebaptized, mm-hmm. and so this creates a scenario that the so-called men who discovered the ancient gospel never really obeyed the ancient gospel, mm-hmm. according to modern-day Church of Christ interpretations on baptism, mm-hmm. and. Uh, You were mentioning, Larry, about the word up here, restores and restoration movement. And sometimes when I'm in a debate, like I was down here in uh, Austin, there are people who come along who don't really know the Church of Christ history, even those within the Church of Christ, Mm -hmm. and they begin to think, well, these are terms which I'm throwing off at them, or restoration movement is something that I'm pitching at them. Mm-hmm. But, since we did our last taping, just to give an example of how widespread this is among churches of Christ, since we did our last taping, I was in Georgia to participate on a TV debate with two Church of Christ ministers there from Alabama. They came over in a Chatsworth, Georgia program sponsored by the Watchman Fellowship. And uh, they gave me this little track, Churches of Christ," written by Joe Barnett, one of their ministers. And uh, would you believe it? You open this track up. It's hard to see here,
1: but it's... Yeah.
2: You open this track up, and within its pages, way up there in Georgia, close to Chattanooga, once again, we run into what? People of the Restoration Spirit.
1: See if... People of the Restoration Spirit. That's what it says. People of Restoration Restoration
2: Spirit. And members of Churches of Christ are a people of Restoration Spirit. Now, you and I, we think of Christians as being people of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But now you see we're being taught in literature published by the Churches of Christ that we're to have a restoration spirit.
0: And
1: and apparently by ministers of the Church of Christ that are willing to go on Georgia television to be seen far and wide preaching this restoration spirit. Right.
2: Now, is Brother Jackson in rebellion to the elders? The Southwest School of the Bible Studies and a part is a part of the work of the Southwest Church of Christ and is under the oversight of the elders. Let me read this. It has a dress and cleanliness code or standard which says sideburns are not to be extended below the lobes of the ear. Catalog page 15. This rule established under the authority of the church elders is an authorized decision of human judgment and is binding. Number four, this means that if members rebel against these decisions made by God's designated leaders, then they in fact rebel against God. Let it be emphasized, to rebel against God's designated leaders is to rebel against God himself. Number five, to rebel against the dress and cleanliness rules established under the oversight of the elders for the Southwest School of Bible Studies is therefore rebelling against God and his sin. Number six, Bill Jackson told me in a letter, January the 8th, No one has ever said that sideburns, if worn by students, is a sin. And he got up here a while ago, said, Students is one thing in the school, and the people in the church over here is another thing, and the elders can tell the students this, and the elders can tell the members this. And then he writes me, No one has ever said that sideburns, if worn by students, is a sin. And yet, the catalog says they will not be tolerated, they will not be permitted. If Jackson is right on this, are all the other rules in the catalog also not sin, Bill? If such things are not sin, by what authority is one pressured into conformity to what can only be human opinion and ascetic taste? Where is the church commanded to be the judge of how people dress, how they wear their sideburns, in those areas that relate only to ascetics and taste, areas that are not sin by any teaching in your Bible? About how long a beard is? Where is the church commanded to be the judge of business deals that you mention in your catalog? Of individual members of the church as specified in the Southwest School of Bible Studies catalog. Yeah, you can't even buy a car over here if it costs too much money. $75 one, they might let you buy. But now if you buy 5000 $10,000, you are going to have to clear it through the elders over here. They control. That's why I say he's a cult. They control people's lives to some degree and that's unscriptural. Only when the teaching of the Bible is set forth can you rule people's lives, and then you're not ruling it. The Word of God is doing it. Human judgment by the elders, you cannot put that down beside the Word of God and say it's equal to it. And that's what they're doing here. They're making human judgment of the elders and telling you not to put your hair down below the earlobe That'd be sin because the elders are authorized to exercise that human judgment. Now, over here in the church, though, they're not authorized to do that for some reason. And yet they say the school is part of the church. Let's have the next chart. Now, Bill Jackson said to me, no one has ever said sideburns is sin. Now, pull that one down and put the next one up. Now, I want to show you some of the pioneer brethren that would not be permitted in Bill Jackson's school. Now, these are all men of the Restoration Movement, ladies and gentlemen. Came right, out of the, came right out of the literature that they published. Look at here. Restorers who could not study the Bible at Southwest School of the Bible. First of all, Alexander Campbell. Thomas Campbell and J.W. McGarvey, and they've even uh, praised his book on Acts. It's the greatest thing it's ever written. And his beard's too, too shabby. He couldn't make it. And, and, you know, uh, none of these guys could go to school over at Southwest School. I just wonder if Austin McGarry had Long whiskers. I couldn't find a picture of him. They might not even have him, and he's one gave them their doctrine on baptism that you have to understand baptism or it's no good. All right, let's have the next one. Ten? Okay. Let's have the next one. Now, here's the information about this. They're going to tell you what kind of clothes to wear. You've got to wear a coat and tie uh, so often, your sideburns, your hair, your mustache, and how much money you can spend and how to make... P- Friends, that sounds like cultic doctrine to me. You talk about the Boston Movement. You talk about the Crossroads Movement. You talk about the, what they call it, the Discipling Movement. What do you call this, Tommy Rot? Telling men how much money they can spend and how long they can wear their hair and sideburns and wearing... Coats and ties, well, they might be mistaken for these Mormon boys that ride around on their bicycles. Let's have
4: the next one. Look at verse number 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us Christ, to Christ. I'm reading Galatians 3 and verse number 24. Was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we watch might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. Are you under the schoolmaster, Bob? Are you? Yes or no? You can answer that. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under the schoolmaster for we are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. I want to know, are we children of God by faith in Christ Jesus? take that down if you would, Bob. Or are we not? The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But after that faith, literally in the Greek, the faith, that's the one faith. After it is come, we're no longer under schoolmaster. Well, as we look at this, then how much time do I have? Two minutes? Two minutes? Oh, well, good. <clears throat> Notice, if you would, some thoughts that we want to look at here very hurriedly. He has mentioned the idea of Brother Hardiman again. Bob, will you get up here and state before these people that N.B. Hardiman agreed with your position on mechanical instruments of music that they are scriptural in worship, or would he agree with what I said? Now, in the context of Mr. Hardiman's argumentation in that particular thing that we have been looking at, he is simply referring to that principle that we are indeed... the Bible is silent, that is, that there is nothing whatsoever that is commanded concerning this, and that's what Mr. or Brother Hardeman is arguing in that particular thing. And so, I would ask us, what is it that the Bible would have us to do? I would ask, what is it? you remember Ephesians 5.19? I have asked him to deal with this. He has not answered it. He has not responded to it. And it makes no difference whether I agree with Ron or disagree with Ron. That doesn't answer the basic premise that we are here to affirm tonight. The scriptures teach that it indeed singing is the only music authorized as an element of Christian worship. Now friends, I will admit, there's no passage that I know of that says specifically music is singing. Huh? Huh? may I say
2: in closing uh, by the way start my time mark may I say in closing that uh, we certainly appreciate each and everyone who's come to the debate this evening whether you uh, agree, disagree or think both Brother Wright and myself are in error we appreciate your uh, paying us the uh, compliment of thinking that we're worth sitting here and listening to on this subject some might wonder, well, why do you debate such a question as instrumental music? And I'll tell you the two points of view. I think Mr. Bright will concur with my statement here. From, from his point of view, as I understand it, if you use musical instruments, you're endangering your soul. You could possibly go to hell unless you repent because it's sinful. It's regarded as rebellion. It's regarded as disobedience. Now, I view that as a complete distortion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So actually, this subject, from my point of view, undermines the gospel of grace because uh, I think it makes salvation by your works of obedience rather than by the grace of God. Now, from his point of view, since he believes that it is essential to obey in this element in the manner in which he believes it, then uh, that is a part of his obedience to what he believes to be the gospel. So although it's a subject that in some respects is on the periphery of things, it does go right to the heart of our basic concepts on what constitutes the gospel. And I believe the gospel is constituted by the pure grace of God and that we work in response to that grace working in us. And uh, of course Mr. Bright can state his own views about it, but certainly uh, not using musical instruments is a part of the nomenclature which he would call the gospel. Now, uh, let us go immediately to a point which I think you've heard of first in this debate. I know I've heard a first in the debate, and I've been going to uh, Church of Christ meetings and debates and so forth, listening to them on the radio, reading their articles for uh, something like 40 years, I guess, going back to 1951, 52, 53 period, the earliest recollection. And I've never heard a Church of Christ minister make a statement he made, the Bible does not say that singing is music. And if I'm not mistaken, he made it twice. Once right before he sat down. Certainly earlier in his speech. The Bible does not say that singing is music. And yet his proposition, he has committed to prove... What does his proposition say? He's committed to prove that singing is the only music authorized as an element of Christian worship. Now, I just suggest that he needs to... uh, Further abandon that slogan that he got up here and tried to, in a way, uh, smooth around about to call him Bible things by Bible names. Uh, I think that he just needs to, all the commentary he made about the dictionary, for instance, just simply means that he needs to abandon his slogan. He comes back to speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent. Now, Uh, I want to uh, go to uh, chart 10b but while it's fresh on your minds. That was in the latter part of his speech. But on chart 10b, this is one of the basic errors of Mr. Uh, Bright, and he is uh, trying to uh, presume on your uh, naivete, if that's the word here, he's going to presume that you're going to not notice something that he's trying to slip across on you here, at least as I view it. He says you're dead to the law, and uh, he quotes it again, uh, Romans 7 6 you're delivered from the law. Now he wants you to think, and the implication is, or the application is, that musical instruments were part of the law, and so now you're dead to the law, you're delivered from the law, and so since you have this little generic statement here about the law this total coverage of the law or however he's applying it here just the law the law he doesn't go into any detail on it he wants to say well now ross is going back onto the old testament law and his high priest would be in the old testament etc etc now ladies and gentlemen does mr bright ever tell you not to kill that's part of the law does he ever tell you not to steal that's part of the law She ever tell you not to commit adultery? That's part of the law. She ever tell you to honor your father and mother? That's part of the law. She ever tell you to do this, do that, do the other out of the Bible from the Ten Commandments? That's part of the law. Did you ever read you the book of Psalms or the book of Proverbs and some of the great moral and spiritual things that are taught there? That's under the Old Testament law, period, isn't it? But now when it comes to the music thing. He wants to say, oh, the law, that excludes musical instruments. But now listen. Listen. Ephesians 5.19, what does it say? The Psalms. The Psalms. What Psalms are we talking about here? What Psalms were they? Were they exclusively New Testament Psalms? Let Him give authority that it's exclusively the New Testament Psalms, and I'll show him his own brethren teaching that it's the Old Testament Psalms. So Paul is telling us that we are to use the Psalms, which means that delivered from the law does not mean delivered from the Psalms. That you become devoted to Christ? Well, sure, that's what the Bible teaches, but remember, basic Kembalism now is still the doctrine of the Boston movement, still the doctrine of the, quote, International Church of Christ, and that is that you don't get to Christ until you get to the water. They're still teaching people that, uh, oh yes, you, uh, you repent and you become a disciple before being baptized, but you're not forgiven yet. There's no salvation yet. And so they're teaching this old doctrine of what we prefer to call water salvation. They object to those terms. But our point is simply this, no water, no salvation. You're not saved, you're not born again until you get to the baptistry. That is still Boston movement, Campbellism, the same as this old line, hard line, Church of Christ doctrine that goes all the way back through the years to the 1800s when Alexander Campbell first advocated the doctrine of baptismal remission of sins.
1: Now you've got an article on it, I notice you have it right back there as a matter of fact. Yes,
2: I brought this article Uh, This article was distributed at a uh, lecture I gave to a Christian group at Purdue University about the Boston Movement. And we had it fixed up in a little circular like this, uh, the Boston Church of Christ. And I wanted to emphasize that as much as you may hear and read in Church of Christ publications that object to the Boston Movement, you'll never find... The Church of Christ movement hitting them right at the roots Mm -hmm. of their era. And that is, is salvation by Christ or is it by baptism? Mm -hmm. Because the mainline Church of Christ cannot really cut down the Boston movement for what it is because they're in the same boat as the Boston Church of Christ on the basic doctrine involving salvation. And that is, the water is where you have your sins forgiven. Mm-hmm. And that's the old line, and that's the new line, and that's the Boston line when it mm-hmm. comes to that. And we have that available for anyone viewing this who wants to have a copy of it, and it discusses all of those scriptures that are used, abused, and misused by both the old line and the Boston movement
1: Now, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Before you set it down, could you uh, review for our, our viewing audience, because they are interested in this type of topic. Could you bring up a couple of the scriptures? Uh, just pick a couple at random there from your article and uh discuss what they're saying and then uh, your
2: response. Well, I deal Larry with the in the first part of this article, basically with when the Bible presents an ordinance, like in the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices or the worship at the tabernacle, the symbols that are associated with Jewish worship, and then we come on in the the New Testament, we find ordinances in the New Testament are ordinances in the overall teaching of the Bible. Ever what really, truly, literally uh, are those the things that really wash away our sins, atone for our sins? Well, the overall answer of the Bible is that the blood of bulls and goats, and for that matter, any other thing that was a type, it never took away sins. Mm -hmm. And baptism is in the same category as those type of ordinances in the Old Testament. Baptism can only do What it can do, and that is, it can be a figure and a likeness, a representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and of my participation in that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by faith. It can represent, that's what ordinances have always done. And so, when you attribute to the ordinance that for which the ordinance stands, or a lot of people, uh, they get wobbly and they start thinking in terms, oh, well, uh, I do baptism or whatever the ordinance may be in order to get what the ordinance is signifying or representing, mm-hmm. And that is not the case. The Bible teaches us that by faith in Jesus Christ mm-hmm. that we have the forgiveness of sins. And baptism represents that. But in this, I deal with that in the first part of it. I deal with those passages that are often brought up such as Acts 2.38, Acts 22.16, Romans 6.3, the whole gamut of the half dozen verses. Let's take
1: uh, Acts 2.38 just for the sake of that being probably their banner, stellar verse. And in fact, you've even written a book on this subject, Acts 2.38 and Baptismal Remission. Uh, Just for uh, the sake of the viewing audience, uh, probably many are totally unfamiliar with any of this. Uh, give them a little understanding of uh, how the Boston Church of Christ, as well as any other Campbellite church, I suppose, would uh, take Acts two thirty eight and how they're trying to use it, and then deal with it.
2: Well, whether it's Acts, uh, whether it's the Boston movement or the old line Church of Christ, Acts two thirty eight is still the sugar stick of both groups. That is, it's their basic scripture that they rely upon for putting emphasis on baptism for the remission of sin.
1: So you're saying if it came down to Acts two thirty eight and you you talk to a regular Campbellite uh, mainline Church of Christ person and then a Boston Church of Christ person, and you simply ask them the question, what about Acts 2.38? And then based on their responses, you would not be able to tell which one was which <laughs>
2: in, in regards
1: to what they, what they answer according to this question of Acts
2: 2.38. Right. Uh, that is, uh, in fact, uh, Kip McKean, who is the leader of the Boston or International Church of Christ, he refers to Acts 238 in his writings in a similar vein as Alexander Campbell, who was the original leader of the original Restoration Movement. And mm-hmm. you see, you've got two Restorationists here. Uh, you've got McKean uh, calling himself a Restorationist in the 1970s and the 1980s, and the, well, 1980s and 1990s, at least. Uh, And then you had Campbell calling himself a restorationist back in the 1800s. And you've got all these uh, churches of Christ around the country, uh, whether they're Mainline or Boston Movement or anti-orphan homes or whatever they may be, whatever category they fall in. There are many Mm -hmm. different kinds of them at this point in time. They're all they're all talking about restoring something, restoring the gospel, restoring the church, restoring this. They're hung up on that idea.
1: So, so uh, for our viewers, and you're seeing that uh, this Kip McKean person, who's basically the the originator of this Boston Church of Christ movement, uh, the International Churches of Christ, he is like a modern day Alexander Campbell.
2: He aspires he, to be uh, to this generation what campbell was in effect to the last generation or the last century because see mckean has pronounced according to his uh, attitude toward mainline churches of christ that they're dead they're no longer valid they're no longer alive he because said
1: he's restored what's the way it's supposed to be and these other churches of christ have not well he,
2: he, he simply said that they are dead they have died out
1: what is his justification
2: well, the idea is that they have restored uh, New Testament Christianity within what's called the International Churches of Christ.
1: His organization.
2: His organization for the last, well, since 1979. Since that time, and then there was a, a time, I think it was about 1986, they kind of uh, called on these other churches of Christ to come to repentance to what they called a Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. What what's wrong with that doctrine? Sounds good. Well, I have uh, been a student for about a year now of David Bernard's book on the oneness of God, in that I have been analyzing it and endeavoring to write some refutations of some of the uh, obvious and weak points of doctrine in the book, and I find that uh, overall. The truly outstanding great era of the Pentecostal doctrine actually is on the gospel of Jesus Christ because as Mark here can relate to you because he's been uh, involved in even uh, ministering in some of their churches as well as being a student of their Bible college and a graduate with valedictorian honors and probably their leading Bible college in America uh, their doctrine of salvation is a mickmash of works. Uh, in the first place, they teach that uh, you have to uh, repent and be baptized and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. And then following that, you have to hold out faithful to the end, to use an old cliche, of doing various and sundry works of uh, morality or righteousness or spirituality uh, witnessing or praying or giving or whatever it might be that's supposed to constitute a Christian life and not only are they wrong in teaching that the uh, principles that I have referred to such as repentance and baptism and things of that sort are essential to conversion or salvation But uh, they also are even uh, confused about the chronology of these things. For instance, they teach, at least Bernard does in his books, that you can be baptized before you repent, and then later if you repent, then this is retroactive to take care of the baptism you had back then. Or like Cornelius, you can be baptized in the Spirit, and speak in tongues before you're a believer, before you're saved. And then after that, you can get water baptism. And uh, so it's kind of like a puzzle with about five or six pieces to it. You have that puzzle laying out here. And you can begin with any one piece just so you fit it all together. You might put it in backwards like 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 or 5, 3, 1, 2, 4. Uh, just so you get it put Together, and Mark am I representing it right here? And especially in relationship to uh, uh, receiving the Holy Spirit and baptism, these things can, however they happen, just so you get them all in there. I know that one of their arguments about Cornelius is that uh, God gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he uh, spoke in other tongues, and yet he wasn't even saved. Isn't that right? He wasn't even saved at that time. Of course, this is the Camelite doctrine too. Yes. And uh, I've often thought in reading some of their writings that uh, I think they've borrowed a whole lot of their doctrines from the Camelites because uh, I've often said I could almost quote verbatim some Camelite book on what I'm reading here in the books that Bernard wrote concerning baptism and uh, things that relate to... Uh, the scriptures on baptism, such as John three five and Mark sixteen sixteen and Acts two thirty eight, uh, they just go right down the line with the Camelot argument on those verses. And uh, of course, uh, to us who are what we regard as evangelical or orthodox Christians, we hold that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the preaching of. Christ in his person and work and that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ we're born again and the the actual what do we mean by being born again we simply mean that coming to faith in Christ is the new birth Uh, God in his grace blesses his word by the power of the Holy Spirit and in effect faith in Christ is created by the power of God as Paul said in the book of Ephesians, the mighty working of his spirit. Well, in the Bible, Jesus says he's the Son of God, and I and my Father are one, and he says I was with the Father before the world began. Mm-hmm. And when you look at all these scriptures that describe Christ's preexistence, you come to the conclusion he's eternal. Mm-hmm. And if he's deity, he has to be eternal. So, as the Son of God, we have here what might be called an anthropomorphic term, Son, that says Jesus is eternal as the Father is eternal. And He's of the same nature as the Father, in other words. So, He's called the everlasting Father. He's never called that as a moniker or as a name as such, but He's called that because He is the revelation of God He declares the Father. You know, a son declares the Father, right? He manifests the Father. Mm -hmm. I dare say you look somewhat like your father. Yes, I do. I look somewhat like my father. Well, people say, I can see your father in you. I can see your mother in you. Mm -hmm. Well, in Jesus Christ, we can see the Father Mm -hmm. because he is of the same generation, the same kind, the same root as the Father. So I take... The scriptures like I and my Father are one, the everlasting Father, John 1, 14, John 1, 18, John three sixteen, where it talks about the only begotten Son of God. But you know the passage that I love more maybe than all the rest, and we're always in the habit of saying uh, things like this. But in the book of Hebrews, in uh, Hebrews chapter 5, I believe it is, and also Hebrews chapter 7, and I'm running out of time. I'm just going to have to summarize this. Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. Paul says he was without father, he was without mother, he was the, without beginning of days and without ending of days, and he was made like unto the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Now, all of these things implying his eternality.
4: It means that the son must be without father, without mother, in the right. sense in the sense of parents.
2: Right. He was without father, mother, descent, beginning of days, or end of life. Made like unto the Son of God. He's eternal. Yes. And and the word son here is used. He's not talking about just an incarnational mm-hmm. title. Right. He's not talking about simply a role. Melchizedek is compared to the eternal Son. Now. Uh, I've got this book, Doug, and uh, I'd like to uh, have the people out there that are interested in this subject, if you are wanting to study the theory about oneness, from our point of view, we'll invite you to contact us about the Trinity and Eternal Sonship. Pilgrim Publications, Box 66, Pasadena, Texas, 77501 this happens to be a triangle now on the front of a book I have here by Cal Beisner you notice he has uh, three circles here and he's dealing with the three persons in God and uh, sometimes uh, you have other diagrams that we could go on endlessly here maybe uh, talking about how men have tried to express the the trinity or some concept similar to the trinity for that matter but uh, Mr. Bickersteth, in his book On the Trinity, hit the nail on the head, and and I have the statement here in the book. He says, all human illustrations of this great mystery must fail. But nevertheless, despite the fact that all human illustrations fail to represent God, uh, we do struggle and strain and strive to express After all, we don't even comprehend God in our minds. So any comprehension we have of God is short of the mark. So maybe this would justify our illustrations, which are also short of the mark. But there is one illustration that Bickersteth gives in this book, which I thought was very unique. And you notice that in Beisner's book, he has those colors of those circles. And I want to read you here... What Bickersteth says about light. Now, the reason I like this illustration is because of the fact that the Bible does say God is light. It doesn't say God is a triangle, <laughs> and it doesn't say that God is a circle or uh, whatnot. But it does say God is light. And here's something that Bickersteth pointed out in his book about light: the prismatic spectrum. And by that we mean that ray of uh, light that we get in the creation by which we have this thing we call light which gives us the opportunity to see things we could not see anything without light one of the early creations of god was the light mm-hmm. and uh, it's such a mystery uh we know what we're talking about when we say light but we really don't know what we're talking about when we say light because you, you see it out there but really you can't see it out there all you see is what is reflecting from the light that falls upon it mm-hmm. and uh, but what this is is a spectrum of light ray that comes upon the objects and it consists in three spectra of nearly equal length each of uniform color superimposed one upon another and that the colors which the actual spectrum exhibits arise from the mixture of the uniform colors of these three spectra superimposed. Now, all printers and all photographers and workers in uh, those creative fields of uh, books and magazines and whatnot, they know what I'm talking about here. We're talking about the magenta, or the red, as some might call it, and the yellow, and the cyan, or the blue, as uh, it might be called, as in the printing trade. Now, these three things, when you take a picture in full color, and you want to reproduce that picture, how do you do it? Well, you've got to separate those three colors, the magenta, the yellow, and the cyan. The red, the yellow, and the blue. So you take it down to a color uh, company. Uh, Well, that's not necessarily the name of it. I deal with one in Houston called the Color Company. And uh, they will take that, and through the cameras which they use, the instruments that they use, they will filter out each of the other colors, and they'll make a separate film of the magenta and the yellow and the blue. Now, when that printer takes it, he will put those down one at a time, one on top of the other, and when it comes out, you've reproduced and printing the living color. Now, what he is talking about here, these three rays of light, when you combine these three constituent lights, you get pure white light, pure white light. Now, this is an illustration of what we're talking about when we say we struggle to illustrate God and the Trinity. If God is light, and there are three rays that you kind of sort out of light, red, yellow, and blue, we can observe each of those colors by and of itself. It's still light. It's still light and then we can push them back together and it's one pure white light we don't see any one of the other colors now we don't see the blue we don't see the red we don't see the yellow Now, all human illustrations fail as we have admitted but let us just think for a minute about this we isolate out the red and we look at the Lord Jesus Christ perhaps we isolate out the blue and we look at God the Father and we isolate out the yellow and we look at the Holy Spirit. And then we put them all blended together and one, we have the one pure white light of the one God. Now, that is a human effort. And yet, God is light. He compares himself to that which is divisible this way just for the sake of the observation. So uh, we're going to admit that this we cannot reproduce God in illustrations, but we're not going to say that uh, we cannot learn something because Jesus himself used parables in illustrating the Word of God and in illustrating spiritual truths and eternal truths and vital truths. And uh, as Spurgeon said, you can never make a parable stand on four legs. It can never be perfect. So we don't claim these things to be perfection. And when, when someone comes along and he begins to knock us for this and criticize this and say, oh, well, they make the Trinity in the form of uh, a creative image or something like that, they are completely distorting and misrepresenting the truth. We are not any more doing that than when Jesus took a parable and illustrated something that pertained to God when he said, "Upon this rock, I will build my church." How many how many things in the Bible is Jesus compared to that are finite? A oh, vine, yeah. right? A door, uh, a door, and, uh, over and over you know, just life. someone wrote a book on it one time. Just how many symbols there are in the right. Bible? Uh, a root out of dry ground, the the rose, the lily, and uh, on and on and on. The line. And uh, so we're doing no injustice to the scripture or violation of the scripture by showing some kind of a simple design to emphasize a principle. And that principle is a three and yet a oneness. That's right. A three and yet a oneness. And that's what those anti-Trinitarians don't really like to admit. They like to charge us with believing tritheism or three gods. Mm-hmm. They do not like to admit that we do not really adhere to
1: the well, three-god idea. They're always accusing us of believing right. in three gods, but never right. getting it, uh, valid, making a valid point out of it, since Trinitarians deny polytheism. They believe only in monotheism, the one true God, who manifests himself is three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
2: Disconstructed from what it was originally intended for.
1: So you're saying it was destroyed, but it did not cease to exist. Exactly. The the bricks and the mortar and stuff were laying all about, but not in its original.
2: Right, and so uh, men that are now living in this life, uh, their lives, as it were, are destroyed from what they have been experiencing. They don't cease to exist.
1: It uh, reminds me of some of the Old Testament. I've been, you might, have been able to tell. I've been reading a lot of the Old Testament here over the last few months. And uh, when you read a lot about King David going out to war, or you know Saul or or some of the other kings, Hezekiah or whatever, uh, you find that they destroyed the Amalekites, they destroyed the Canaanites, they destroyed the Jebusites and all the otherites. And in a lot of these instances you know in the king james a lot of times it says uh, discomforted or whatever but that means the same thing but but what i wanted to say is they destroyed them but their their dead bodies and stuff were still laying on the battlefield and they're out there stripping the bodies
2: i think a good illustration of that would be when they dropped the atom bomb in japan it destroyed a lot of things but uh, they did not cease to be they were still there That's right. Uh, so it doesn't mean that and
1: uh, well, that's, I think that's a good Clarification for the person at home Because a lot of people and a lot of the cults Really jump on that word destruction And try to make it always mean
2: and, total and, annihilation And basically hell is a destruction Of things like uh, peace And joy and happiness And pleasure and all that's Good about life and, uh, But it's not annihilation The unsaved still exist They only exist in this Destroyed condition that's right. No peace, that's no very, joy, no very happiness.
1: Good very good way. Okay, now let's go back to the chart then and uh, look at some other things here. We find out hell is described in Revelation nineteen twenty as the lake of fire. Now, uh, uh, Bob, just for a moment here. Uh, we know in the Scripture it talks about Sheol a lot in uh, the Old Testament. Uh, you don't have to go into a, a long uh, discourse on this. We, we uh, There's your track that will get into a lot of this that people could send off for... But you got like places like Sheol, Tartarus, Hades, Hell, and then you got this lake of fire. Now, uh, this is a little different than like Hades or some of these other places because this is, the, is more indicative of the final estate, the final state of the dam. Is that not correct?
2: That, that's it. And, uh, uh, now, whether or not this would be classified as maybe a metaphorical language of uh, the sp- condition of hell. I think that uh, is a uh, moot point. It's uh, irrelevant for us to know. I mean, someone might say, well, where is this lake? How big is this lake? How deep is this lake? And uh, how hot is the fire in this lake and all that? The point is God is wanting us to think of this in terms of a massive form of punishment that people are facing here. And to, be think, and to be thrown into the lake of fire, to be tormented day and night forever and forever, what more imagery can you bring up on your mind to make you realize there's a dreadful future ahead of you without the Lord Jesus Christ? Mm-hmm. And there's no way around it, there's no way under it, there's no way over it. Uh, if you're going to be without Christ, if you're going to reject Christ, this is what awaits you. And whatever that means, it means something awful, terrible.
1: That's right. All right. Now, uh, with time flying on us here and looking at the clock, and we're going to have to uh, expound on this uh, a lot quicker here. All of a sudden, uh, hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Jesus said it. Hell is prepared for the wicked.
2: Yeah, everybody you don't like is going to be there, Larry, <laughs> and you'll I, I, be and you'll be side by side with them, sir. So. Uh,
1: yeah, it, it's that old saying: we'll be surprised by who we uh, see in heaven and who we yeah. don't see.
2: Yeah, everybody. Everybody <laughs> that said, "I don't go to church because I don't want to be around the hypocrites," they'll get their bait up in hell.
1: That's right; they'll be with the rest of them. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, prepared for the uh, hell is prepared for the disobedient. Romans two eight and nine. Prepared for fallen angels, which are basically the devils, demons, whatever. Uh, that's Second Peter chapter two verse four. Prepare for the beast and a false prophet, which come into such prominence there in yeah, Revelation.
2: there's another 19, thing. 20. All these uh, that they are talking about now, you know, preachers and false prophets. They'll get all their bait of those too when they go to hell. <laughs> they'll right. all be there.
1: That's right. Uh, hell is prepared for worshipers of the beast. Revelation fourteen eleven. Is prepared for rejecters of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and coming to faith and saving knowledge of Him. That's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. I'm going to just flip the old chart here. As we continue, we find that uh, the punishment of hell and hell is described as the punishment that is eternal, as we've discussed quite a bit. It's found in Isaiah 33:14. I wasn't originally planning to put this unpopular doctrine in here, but I just thought of it. There's so many unpopular doctrines in the Bible; they're just everywhere. But uh, I'm going to add this into this particular show. We've got a whole giant list here, but for this series. But uh, you, you kind of made me think of it, and I want to bring this up. The viewers at home can see Matthew chapter seven, and you've already mentioned it yourself uh, about the gate. And in verse 13. Jesus uh, says, and I'm reading from a King James Version, it says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Verse 14, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. And then he immediately talks about, uh, in verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look like they're Christians. But inwardly, they are ravening wolves. And then he goes on to talk about corrupt fruit and all these things and how you'll know people by their fruits and and so forth. But the unpopular doctrine, and that's unpopular in itself, but the real key here is verse 21 and following. Look there with me at home on the screen. It says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have not we prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. You can also cross reference that to Philippians chapter 1, verses 15-18, through 18, and Galatians 2-4. But anyway, and then he goes on to say in verse 23, and this is really unpopular. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You can also cross-reference that to Luke 13, verses 24 through 30, and so forth. Uh, Look what we've got here. We have got a very unpopular doctrine. We have emphasis, Bob, and we all know about Jesus saying, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you. In the Hebrew culture, when you repeated something twice, it's like, Stop the stop the show. You better hear what I'm saying next. It's to really put some emphasis on it. What we have here in this unpopular doctrine is Jesus saying, here's these people that say, Lord, Lord. So now we've got people that are really big time on uh, claiming their Christianity. They're claiming To be, I'm the best. I do all these things. I'm really into Christianity. But what is he going to do with even these types of people at the end? Uh, He's going to reject them. Now, what do you say about
2: that? Well, the very startling thing about this text, Larry, is that these appear to be ministers, preachers, doctors of religion, uh, Christian religion, because they say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name we've cast out devils. In thy name we've done many wonderful works. Now, this is not a foreign religion. Uh, It's
1: not like Hinduism or Islam. We're talking about
2: people that claim to be This is not a non-Christian religion Mm -hmm. professedly. This is a professing Christian religion because they're casting out demons in his name, supposedly. Mm -hmm. They're doing many wonderful works in his name, supposedly. Now, who are these? Well... Only the Lord knows who they are, but uh, just let me uh, remind you of the fact that uh, those who are least preaching the gospel, if I can use that grammar, those who are really not engaged primarily, first and foremost, in preaching the gospel, there are those who are engaged in miracles, mighty works, casting out demons, doing many wonderful works. I would be suspicious of those people who are magnifying these wonderful works that are designed to impress, that are designed to embellish, that are designed to get a response from people, oh, this is such a great work, this is such a marvelous man, he surely is a man of God. They're drawing attention to themselves by these many wonderful works that they're professing to do and that's who the lord is talking about here now i don't know how he will apply this when it comes to this particular uh, category of judgment uh he said i he said i'll say uh, i never knew you depart from me but i'm just always leery of these people that come professing many wonderful works casting out demons saying lord lord reminds me of uh, and, a lot of TV and, preachers and, 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 and uh, the sad thing about it though is not so much that the real sad thing about it is this is camouflaging covering up and disposing of the gospel the one message of salvation right. it gets away from that it diverts from that now
1: do you see how unpopular this can be because now what we're seeing is Jesus already said there's going to be few that make it And then to even narrow it down more, here we're talking—we're not talking about all the pagans and the heathen out there that don't even claim to be Christians. We're talking about these guys that really claim to be Christians, and a lot of them aren't going to make it. Right. So now your numbers are really getting few. The the few, when Jesus says "few," he's not kidding around because you already know the heathen
2: and the pagans aren't going to make it. Well, we don't want to be suspected of being as guilty as the old, uh, I think it was the Mennonite or someone like that who said to his wife, uh, sometimes I think that uh, me and thee are the only ones saved, and sometimes I have my doubts about thee. We don't want to get that extreme. But the point is we're trying to emphasize the narrowness of the message that it's wide enough for the whole world could come through if they would simply come through the narrow gate i mean it's like a giant funnel that comes down to the bottom and if you will get inside that and come on down through that narrow funnel you will go through believe on the lord jesus christ and thou should be saved but if you're going to create all these other ways then you're narrowing it down and few there be that find it and uh so we we don't want to think larry and i are the only ones that believe this, or that we're the only one that's saved, or something of that sort, we're not. We're simply saying that if you add to the message of we're the Lord take, Jesus Christ, you're not going through the straight gate, it's a narrow gate, it's a one message, I am the way gate. It's an I, you see how narrow the I is, is, is it true that I is the most narrow mm-hmm. of the letters we have in the alphabet? It's not a big O, It's not the big O. It's the I, and it's the Jesus that's the I. I am the way. And uh, if you'll come that way, you'll have no problems. You don't have to be a Baptist. You don't have to be a Larry Wessels follower or a Bob Ross follower. You don't have to be a uh, particular religious sect or group or identity. Just follow Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I shall be saved. And that knocks in the head all these other false doctrines, false religions, which want to divert you here, there, and yon, and in every direction but the right direction. My name is Bob Ross. I'm from Pasadena, Texas, and uh, generally representative of Pilgrim Publications, publishers of the works of C.A. Spurgeon. And we have a debate today between Larry Wessels of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, and Steve McCaleb of Houston, Texas, And the debate is on the nature and extent of the atonement as it's defined in the respective propositions. Steve's proposition with regard to his view and Larry's proposition on the atonement with regard to his view. And, of course, we're going to have five-minute speeches and we'll have each person uh, rebutting the position of the opposite party. And uh, we... uh, would like to say that uh, the rules of debate they have agreed to follow are Hedges' rules of debate. And while we will not be trying to police either of these speakers, we do hope that they will maintain good order and respect and following the uh, specifications that are laid down in Hedges' rules of debate. So without further introductory comments, I will direct the uh, first speaker Mr. Steve McCaleb to proceed with his proposition
5: the blood of the Covenant wherewith they were sanctified that says they were sanctified they were sanctified yes or no they
1: were not sanctified No, in the sense of Hebrews chapter six, which I just brought up, where he says that these people can be enlightened by the Holy Spirit, they can do all these things, Uh, but still not be saved. Can I
2: butt in, Steve? I don't get a clarification on that Egyptian thing you mentioned. Strangers, but what I want to know is, do you (laughs) say that the uh, the Passover Lamb in the Old Testament was for the whole world? Like we had, say, American Indians over here, which were not even knowledgeable of this does the Passover lamb have anything to do with them?
5: Alright, well to answer your question Bob let me just end with what he said he did say no, they were not sanctified so let, it, let that be on the record that Larry said that they were not sanctified and he ten. now I already answered your question Bob I said that any stranger that came into the Israelites house was covered by the blood of the Passover lamb that's what I told you yeah but you.
2: you're making a proviso there Steve which we make that proviso about the atonement the atonement applies to everyone who accepts the lord jesus christ but what i'm saying is was the passover lamb actually offered your your proposition is saying that it's for the whole world every human being well if the passover lamb represents the atonement doesn't this mean that it represented egypt and everyone else in the world that had no knowledge of the passover lamb
5: no, I'm saying that this was a shadow of the Passover Lamb that was coming, Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ, uh, just as all of Israel was covered and God was only dealing with one country, that doesn't mean that, that every Israelite was elect, but God was dealing with one country, Israel, and even Paul himself said that not all Israel was of Israel. I well, we agree with all that, okay. but the
2: point, the point I'm trying to make is that the atonement is conditional upon faith.
5: Yes, it does take faith in his blood. All right, Paul said, all right, yes.
2: Then, then, then the atonement could not be effectual or applicable to. Well, no, I agree with. Men. In
5: fact, I agree with what Larry said, and I, I would have to agree with one thing Larry said, and that is that. Um, the Passover, the original Passover, was not dealing with the sins, per se, of the Israelites. God said, when He sees the blood, I will pass over you. That was a foreshadowing of Jesus seeing the blood on our souls, and He would pass over us in seconds. wrath. Well, let so me I, I agree with you, Larry, that it wasn't really talking about sins, per se. And but it was a foreshadowing of the Passover Jesus, who is called our Passover. Exactly. I'd
1: like to say, uh, Hebrews 6, again, it says... Uh, Uh, He's talking about uh, these people who were actually lost and not saved, partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the The age to come have fallen away.
2: We turn to Steve McCaleb for a five-minute closing affirmative. I'm I'm not ashamed to tell you I'm a Spurgeonite. I am a Spurgeonite because what Spurgeon preached was the truth. And I can identify with... Uh, the doctrines and practices that Spurgeon preached, why? Because I can find them right here in this book, the Word of God. Now, I've, I've told people before, as far as being a Campbellite is concerned, I said, I, you know, I, I wouldn't attempt to defend him. You can't raise the dead, so there's no need of trying to defend Alexander Campbell. But when it comes to Spurgeon, it's another story. The man preached the Word of God, and to be a Spurgeonite is to be one who believed the word of, who believes the Word of God. So I'm not ashamed to be called by that term. If someone wants to say that, I, I plead guilty. I have a bookstore in Pasadena, and some time ago we had a couple of young men come into the store, and uh, they were Spanish-speaking fellows primarily, and they were wanting to start a ministry among the Spanish-speaking people down in south houston then they were wanting to have me to give them some help along that line and uh... i said well i would like to do this and i would like to get some of the materials by spurgeon into your hands that are in spanish to give to the folks that you'll be ministering to and they said who's spurgeon i said you don't know who spurgeon is both these men were very young in their early twenties i suppose and uh being in that situation, I could understand at that point in their lives they had perhaps not heard of Spurgeon and knew anything about him. I said, you've never heard of Spurgeon? They said, no. And with all the seriousness I could get on my face without cracking a smile, I said, Spurgeon was the 13th apostle. (laughs) And they looked at one another. They didn't know whether to jump jump and leave or uh, laugh or what. And I said, come back here and let me show you Spurgeon. So I went back to this little corner of my bookstore where we have this picture of Spurgeon that we go back to three times a day and bow down and pray (laughs) and and all. Now, we have all his books on display back at this particular section. It's about an eight-foot wide section and all of his books and sermons and so forth that we publish and some other publishers. By the way, Brother Bullock mentioned other publishers there's about 12 or 15 companies, I suppose, in the world that publish something by Spurgeon. And uh, Zondervan, the largest company in the United States for years, they published Morning and Evening, his devotional book, and they've published that for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years or more. Baker Bookhouse in Grand Rapids, Kriegel in Grand Rapids, and Erdman's in Grand Rapids, all of them have something of Spurgeon. How many of you have heard of Moody Bible Institute and Moody Press and... Uh, D.L. Moody, and uh, you know the first book that D.L. Moody ever printed? It was Spurgeon's book entitled, All of Grace. All of Grace. And you know the book that has sold more books in the history of Moody Publishing Company, Moody Press, than any other book? Spurgeon's book, All of Grace. And they still print it today. We print it today, and there's two or three other companies that print it today. Now, and, and I'm telling you this just to emphasize that there are publishers and companies around the world that still publish Spurgeon child evangelism I'm sure all of you have heard of child evangelism an organization that was started to work with children by a man by the name of Overholzer you know why it got started? Overholzer was reading a sermon by Spurgeon and uh, Spurgeon said in there the child is three or four years old could be saved By hearing the gospel and having the gospel expounded to that child. And Overholzer said, I just can't believe this. So he said, I'm going to try. And he went out and started witnessing to children. And he found out that children could be converted by the power of the gospel. And he started working with them. And lo and behold, he had to give up his pastorate and go into this child evangelism ministry that's on the scene today reaching children around the world who where'd he get this idea reading a sermon by c.h spurgeon talking about moody before moody ever started to preach he was a sunday school teacher working with people in sunday school he heard about spurgeon over in london preaching to the largest baptist church in england this was back in the 1860s. Moody said, "I want to go hear him preach." He went across the ocean, he went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and unlike the Cross Memorial Baptist Church or most other Baptist churches in this town, he couldn't get in. He didn't have a ticket. Can you imagine having to have a ticket to get in to hear a preacher like Brother Bullock here? (Laughter) Anyway, the problem was Spurgeon only had a building that would seat about 5,000. And uh, Sunday morning services, they were packed out and, and uh, people were turned away. And so what they did, they said, we'll start passing out tickets so that everyone who plans to come Sunday morning will be sure of having a seat. And then if you can't come, you can give your ticket to someone else that wants to come. And so uh, you showed up there Sunday morning without a ticket while well, you were just out of luck unless there was somebody out there out front, to, what do they call these fellows, stand out front selling tickets, yeah. scalpers. <laughs> and uh, so unless you got hold of someone out there that was scalping tickets to hear a Baptist preacher, which is kind of unheard of, isn't it? But anyway, Moody said, I found out I couldn't get in without a ticket, but he said uh, somehow I got in. He sneaked in. Here's a preacher or Sunday school teacher sneaking in without a ticket to hear hear another preacher. So he went in there, and he sat down in this seat, and he said, I'd like to take this seat back to America with me. He was there, this was said on a later occasion when he was there speaking at a memorial service for Spurgeon. He said, I remember the very seat, and I'd like to take it back to America with me. But Moody went over there, he listened to Spurgeon, and he saw Spurgeon's school for preachers, And he saw the publishing work that Spurgeon was doing, publishing literature, and Moody said, I, by the grace of God, want to do this same thing in America. So he came back to America. Soon he started preaching. He went into evangelism. And as time went on, he established a school founded on the same pattern as the one that Spurgeon had in London, started a publishing ministry founded on the same pattern Spurgeon had in London and uh lo and behold the moody bible institute has become somewhat an example for schools like brother bullock has started here like others have started all over this country the bible institute bible college movement and the inspiration of that goes back to c h spurgeon in london in his ministry of the pastor's college that he had over there he was the first one in the english-speaking world to have that concept of training Preachers on the level that uh, they would not be studying to become great scholars and, and uh, you know, just those doctors and all this that we have when you go off to some of these seminaries and come back to pastor some of these big churches where you have to have five degrees hanging after your name. Uh, that's another thing about Spurgeon. <clears throat> he had a degree all right, he had a B.A. degree. He was born again. Yeah. He was born again. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, really. I, I got all off base here with this in the beginning. But anyway, that, that lets you know a little bit about when Spurgeon lived, what he did, who he was, and what does he have to do with us today. minister here, and there's both a lower level for seating. It looks like they have about uh, 24 long rows of seats, and then there's balcony on either side and in the rear. So there's a good size seating capacity here for the church. They have a very attractive and thriving bookshop right behind the pulpit area here. Well, that was an old hardback do you have a, a, a business card that I can remember the name of the I don't room. Room. The yeah, right. This is the preaching desk that CX Spurgeon used at Metropolitan Tabernacle. And uh, there's a clock that's placed inside the right side of the pulpit. And uh, this is a very be- beautiful and uh, sturdy wood that it was made of. So if you've seen pictures of Spurgeon standing on the rostrum, uh, this was the pulpit behind which he was delivering the Word of God. So
4: there's a uh, craft. Here we have the chair that belonged to John Hill. Uh, sculptural uh, This think very, very, very If to move this place, as much as two people can do to lift in a solid model.
5: Okay, here we are, smile.
2: Of if we had the car, we could have driven right up. Norwood Cemetery. just stone. His virgin would care. He's not in there. It's just his bones. Chapter 4 and verse 7. You want me to read it? Yeah. It says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his Second Timothy, chapter 4,
4: verses 7 and 8. Looking from the backside at that which was said regarding his wife, Susanna. Susanna's
2: in there with him. Hey, Mr. Spurgeon, are you in there?
1: If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.